are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. If you have your Bibles today, I want you to take them and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We're going to get a running start. We're returning to the principles that will revolutionize your life. There are nine imperatives in this passage. And uh, just to be honest with you, after preaching for weeks on signs of the, the signs that the follower of Christ cannot ignore. In other words, we're living in a day like no other. We're seeing things that are happening in the world stage that in all honesty may make us think, am I living in the last days? And uh, yet, when I do topical preaching like that, I eventually want to get back to just exegetical, exegesis, which means looking at the Bible verse by verse. Now, uh, so we're back in James chapter 4 today, but I'll probably be still pulling in some things that we've talked about over the last few weeks. I wrote down here, I said, you know, there are times that I need to crawl up in the lap of Jesus, cradle his word in my hands, and read them into my heart and rest in his unfailing love. Is that you? I went on to write this. I said, why? Because in an unstable, shifting world of competing worldviews, I need the solid rock of God's word as Jesus spoke about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he ended the Sermon on the Mount by talking about a man or a woman who listens, applies that to their life. He said it's people that, that in essence, are building their life on the rock of Jesus Christ. No matter the storms that come, we're able to stand against those storms. Now, in James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from you? from your desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, now notice that, chooses to be a friend of the world becomes what? Becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely. In other words, God's jealous. But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is where we're going to be today, verse 7. There are nine imperatives here that I believe that if you and I, in the entire Bible, that if you and I could take these nine imperatives, these commands, and apply them to our lives, I believe, now I want you to listen, look this way. Everybody, look this way for a moment. It would revolutionize your life. It would revolutionize my life. Nine imperatives. Now, we're going to get five of them again today. Now, watch this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will do what? He will lift you up. Now let's pray again. Lord, we love you. We give you glory. Lord, cleanse me. Forgive me. Let me be a tool. Lord, I pray that people would be very attentive today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, we said there are nine imperatives. Let me give you the first one. The first one is submit. Turn to your neighbor and say submit. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, the way to resist the devil is to submit to God. Now, did you hear that? The way to resist the devil is to submit to God. One writer said this, if you and I are not living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we have no ability to resist the devil. You see, when you and I are not submissive, not submitting to God, hupotasso in the Greek, falling in rank, under the lordship, the discipline, the counsel of God's word. Now, everybody listen, we're not going to have the power of God on our life. We're not going to have the presence of God in our life. We're not going to have the provisions of God in our life. So James says here that the first imperative, in fact, the other eight depend on it, is the ability of you and I to submit. One writer said this, it is the, um, he says this word here, submit, it's in the aorist imperative. It conveys, a, now listen to this, the word conveys a sense of urgency that demands compliance immediately. In other words, James is saying, you and I need to submit and we need to do it immediately right now. It's almost as if he's urgent here. One writer said, you and I cannot afford to put off submission to God. Why? Because my worldview, a biblical worldview, is dependent upon me being submissive to God's word and God's will for my life. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. If you remember over the last few weeks, we've talked about Hamas, Hezbollah, Israel, Gaza Strip. We've talked about this, the Middle East the crisis there. But I also talked to you about worldviews. Do you remember that? Now, Western civilization is built on a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. In other words, Western civilization, where, where you and I live, is built on a biblical worldview. Now, in America today, there is an extreme left, woke, kind of extremist position that is built on a Marxist-Leninist worldview. That's what you see in countries such as what we left in Zimbabwe, a Marxist worldview. And then there is an Islamic worldview, and that Islamic worldview is competing with a biblical worldview. Now let me take that a little bit farther. Let me read something to you. And before I do, understand this. Iran, is, uh, Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, Sudan, some of the countries around the world, they are governed by an Islamic worldview. Now let me read something to you. 
Paul uh, Fregosi, in his book Jihad, I quoted this last week, which is a history of Islam, speaks of the violence of Islam through the 7th century unto the present that is supported by an allegiance to the Quran. Now, the Quran is the Bible of the Islamic people. Now, listen very closely. I need you to listen. I don't need you to look around. I need you to listen. I need your spiritual antennas up real high. Because this is important. Paul Fregosi says in his book, Jihad, which is a history of Islam, he speaks about the violence of Islam through the 7th century until, until, the, uh, until the present, supported by an allegiance to the Quran, which is just like your Bible to the, is, to the Muslim people. It determines the decisions and how they make decisions. He said this, he said, remember, well, he's talking about worldviews, he says, remember to the Hamas, their worldview is based on their understanding of the Quran. Fergozi writes in a definitive work on, on Islam in this book, Jihad. He said, the Muslim holy books recount several tales of murder and mayhem. mayhem. There had always been, now listen to this, a tradition of fighting and raids in pre-Islamic Arabia among the Bedouin tribes, which Islam took over. Now listen closely. The jihad, as it became, turned into one of the mainstays of Muslim faith. Now we're talking about an Islamic worldview. Uh, the jihad, as it became, warfare became turned in one of the, uh, the mainstays of the Muslim faith. Having been conveyed by Muhammad, Muslims believed directly from Allah through the angel Gabriel. In other words, they believed that the Quran, their Bible, came through Muhammad as he was given a message by Gabriel that came from Allah, their word for God. Now listen, this is critical. Do all Muslims... Okay, Fergozi quotes the Quran. When you meet the unbelievers, strike off their heads until you have massacred them. Fight in the cause of Allah. Kill them wherever you find them. Now, the writing went on... The, the statement was, Do all Muslims accept this teaching... No, but if they do not, they are rejecting a component, a teaching of their final authority, the Quran. Fergozi went on to say this. He says, the outcome of this belief, first, if you live it out, your belief system in Islam, the Quran, it allows no better. It encourages you to plunder, slavery, raping of women, taking women, pillaging, destruction, and death. And if you die while doing that, you are going into paradise where you are taken care of by 22 virgins sitting on green felt couches and having orgasms that last from 24 years to 1,000 years. Now you may say, well, why is that important? 
because that is the Islamic world view that Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah would love to spread not only around the world, but in the United States. And Islam is growing at 77% increase, and you have to understand that a Muslim who holds to their Bible, their Quran, their final authority, they are commanded to behead the unbeliever, to massacre them. That's why worldviews are important. After I read that, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I've had to put this book down because it's been so troubling to me. But I thought about a conversation that I had with a Muslim friend. His name is Hassan. I said to Hassan, after he had read the New Testament in two days and comparing it to the Quran, I asked this Muslim if God the Creator were to invade his creation to fix what only he could fix, what sin had brought into the world, what historical religious figure would he look like? I looked at this Muslim who was holding a Turkish New Testament. I said, what would he look like? What historical religious figure would he look like? And I looked at him and I said, would he look like Muhammad? He said, oh no. He said, no. He said he would look like Jesus. Then my next question was him, to him was this. Listen closely. Will you submit then to the God of the Bible? Will you live under the lordship of his son Jesus Christ? Will you exchange the religion of death, Islam, for the religion of life, Christianity? It all has to do with submission. When you and I, James said, when we submit, we're coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And listen, look this way. We are taking this book as our final authority, and by this book we make every decision, decision that we make in life. We live under this book. The Muslim says to spread their religion, you have to kill, pillage, rape, destroy, behead. It is a religion of death. To the Christian, we say, we convert by the love of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. If anyone is told to die, it is not the one we're converting. We are told to die. Give up all rights. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross, that form of execution. Billy Graham said that's the equivalent of Jesus saying to you and I, take up your electric chair and follow me. In Zimbabwe, there was a, uh, a missionary doctor in the middle of surgery as war was going on all around him. And a young intern was next to him. And this young turn, intern was beginning to shake. That seasoned old veteran Christian doctor looked at him and this intern said, aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid that you might die? That doctor looked at him and said, son, I died a long time ago. You see, that's what James is talking about. Submit yourselves then to God. And that's living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then listen, 
resist the devil. You know, the definition to withstand, to strive against, to oppose, to keep the devil at bay, to fend off the influence of the devil. You know, that's a lot of work, isn't it? It's hard to resist the devil, isn't it? But the Bible says when you and I resist him, what does he do? Hey, 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 listen. Hollywood may scare us with the exorcism and all their poo that they come up with on the devil and on demonic and all of that. Let me tell you something. I'm not afraid of the devil. He better be afraid of me. The Bible never tells you to run from the devil. The Bible says you are to submit therefore unto God. You're under the rank and the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you right now, if they asked me, if somebody came to me and said, hey, Brother Jeff, would you be willing to go and do humanitarian aid in Israel? Would you be willing to do that? If Jesus Christ told me to do it, I would go up with no fear at all. I'm not afraid. Bible didn't tell me to live in fear. In fact, the Bible said this. If Jesus walked into this room right now, what would be the two words he'd say? Fear not. He wouldn't say shalom, peace. That's what a Jew normally said. He would say fear not. We walk by faith, not by sight, and not by fear. We don't walk by fear. So when I'm submitting, when I'm under the lordship of Jesus Christ, when my life is in the will and the purpose and plan that God has for my life, you know what God says? You can take on hell and everything they can dish out. Isn't that powerful? Take a right. Look at 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Just very, It's just a couple of pages over. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 8 and 9, listen to this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to do what? To pick on? To tickle? What? To devour. You know, what, you know that's what Jesus said? In Luke 22, you know what Jesus told Peter? He said, Peter, he said, look at me, Simon, Simon. He used his old name, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I pray for you that your faith will not fail. And after you've come through this, I want you to strengthen your brothers. The word Jesus used for sift meant to rip apart, tear down, to devour, to destroy. You know what the devil wants to do in your life? He wants to tear you down, tear you apart. That's what he wants to do. And when your life is in the will of God, you're doing what God's called you to do. Hey, listen, that's a very good, safe place to be. So, uh, now how am I going to stand against the devil? Everybody listen. I love Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. You see, I, I, I carry a, y'all don't know this, but I carry a concealed weapon. Did you know that? Just go ahead and warn you right now, I got a concealed weapon. And I'm going to tell you this, I've read the Bible three and over three times in a year. I, I fin I've already finished the one-year Bible, started it again. I'm hiding the Word of God in my heart. It's my concealed weapon. When the enemy comes against me, the Holy Spirit reaches into my heart, pulls out the Word that I've hidden away there, and shoots it at the enemy, and the enemy runs. And, and hey, listen, the Bible says this in, in Psalm 119, I think uh, verse 105, it says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. 
You know, I'm walking through a very dark world, but you know what? The Bible is a lamp unto my feet. It's guiding me. And let me tell you, when I get stressed, I want you to hear me, young people. When I get stressed, when I get anxious and I worry and I do, you know what I do? I grab that book, run to a private place. My wife is already shaking her head. I do, I do what you girls do. I raise girls as well as boys. I know what you girls do. You go back there, get in your bed, and you pull your T-shirt or your gown up like this. You'll pull. My girls used to pull their whole body up into their night their nightgown, and then they'd pull their head down in there. I'd walk in there and look like a look like a, 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 a something sitting there, like a sheet with something underneath it. It'd almost be kind of spooky to me. But there's a little bit, girls. There's a little bit of girl in me. When I get afraid, when I get scared, I get in there and I find me a place. I get up in the bed or I get somewhere and I take the Word of God and I just get to wrap myself around God's Word because it's in that I feel peace, comfort, and I feel worry, I feel stress, and I feel anxiety leaving. That's what James is saying here. So I'm going to submit therefore unto God, resist the devil, and watch this draw near to God. Look at that. In James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. And you may say, well, how do I do that? By confessing sin, asking for forgiveness and cleansing. You know, A.W. Tozer, I used this, in his book, Nearness is Likeness. He said, the more we are like God, the nearer we are to God. Did you hear that? The more, we, the more we are like God, the closer we are to God. Right? You ever just hang around somebody so long you start sounding like them? You know, I watched, I, I got my favorite TV programs. And one of them, I, I, I watched Blue Bloods with Tom Selleck. And he's the police commissioner. And you know, I watch that show and sometimes, in fact, I send a, I was going to meet a man one day to eat and I don't know where I found it. I found it down the homeless stuff. I found a New York police officer's hat. And so I put that on. Well, I got Frank Reagan. I got a pair of sunglasses that look just like Frank Reagan, Tom Selleck. So I had that hat on. I was getting ready to go into this restaurant and I put those sunglasses on and I sent a picture of me to Sheila and the kids and said, hey, who do I look like? I wanted them to say, you look like Tom Selleck, because Tom Selleck's got a big full mustache. And, uh, but I thought to myself, you know, you hang around somebody very long, you, get to sound, you start sounding like them. You act like them. Bad company does what? Corrupts good morals. You see, this is what God, you know, you know what James is saying? James is saying this, the more you and I, the closer we are to God, the more we look like him. We start taking on his characteristics. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, God graciously draws near to us when we deal... Now listen to this. When we deal with the sin in our lives that keeps them at a distance. Let me read that again. Did you hear that? Some of you heard it because you groaned. That's what I did. God graciously draws near to us when we deal, when we deal with the sin in our lives that keeps them at a distance. God can't fellowship, listen, God can't fellowship with sin. Can't do it. 
Habert, uh, who's uh, written an extensive scholarly work on James, said this. He said, Come near to God indicates that their worldliness had resulted in a distance separating them from God. Is that you? You're so much in the world. You look so much like the world. You talk and act like the world so much that God says, I can't fellowship with you. They, listen to what he went on to say. They must return to an intimate relationship with him. He again brings up the heiress imperative. It's a command. Calls for a decisive, complete return on their part. This does not mean that he says that the initiative for restored relations lies with man, but the imperative is a call to man's will to respond to God's will. In other words, both of us are coming together. God, as I'm drawing near to God, God's drawing near to me. We're coming together. That's what's happening here. The will of man is so clear, one writer said, that James lists a how-to-come-near process, all of which implies that the will of man working in unison with the will of God. And I thought about that. Think about it. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, if God's not willing, if God's will is that all come to Christ, if, if the Bible says God is not willing that none should perish, that's 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's patient. Not, listen to this, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Well, you're saying, well, wait a minute. If that's God's will, why isn't God's will accomplished? My friend, it's because you and I have a will. The reason that doesn't come to fruition is why? Because of the failure of man's will to work in unison with God's will. You got saved because your will and God's will met. My friend, you're sanctified as you continue to walk in the will of God and not in your own will. Wow. Well, look at the fourth one, wash your hands. Wash your hands, you sinners. You know, I grew up in a home where you had to wash your hands. You know, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people don't even eat at a table. People don't set the table. People eat watching TV. I mean, you know, they don't have a meal together anymore. We used to have supper together every evening. I mean, we had it every evening. And let me tell you, when we came to the table, all four kids... The first question was, you want to guess? Did you wash your hands? Right? Did you wash your hands? Now, when we were small, maybe even when we got a little older, that wasn't enough. I washed my hands. Let me see them. Right? Then what if they really wanted to test you, what do they do? Every mom, every mom went, smell them. Right? Your child's coming to the table, and you're going to interrogate them as to whether their hands are clean. Did you wash your hands? Well, that's not enough. Let me see them. Well, that's not enough. Let me smell them. Isn't that strange that the Bible tells us to wash our hands? You know, the priest was required to wash his hands before he would enter the Holy of Holies. Well, how do I wash my hands? What does this mean here? Let me read 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Just listen. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, and you've heard me say this so many times, homo legeo, homo same, legeo means I'm saying the same thing that God says about my sin. If we confess our sins, now listen to this, if we confess our sins, conditional, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. Now listen to this, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our hearts, in our lives. You ever notice when, you, when a child's guilty, when, when somebody's guilty, let me tell you what they naturally do. When a child is guilty, you know what they naturally do? Everybody look, watch. They hide their hands. And I, I, I'll tell you, I don't know what it is, but if we're guilty, we either hide our hands, put them behind our back, stick them down in our pockets, but it's as if these hands have something to do with how we're feeling. Somehow the hands are linked to the heart. Now let me, let me give you a principle. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. In fact, if you're listening, say amen. amen. I want you to listen closely. I wrote down a child's tendency is to hide their hands when they're guilty. That's a principle. Listen to the principle. You can't clean what you are hiding. You know what God says? I can't deal with your sin as long as you're hiding it. You hear that, young people? If I'm going to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and this is going to be my final authority, then the reality is, is God says, listen, you can't, I can't cleanse what you're hiding. You're going to have to confess it to me. Lord, I agree with you this is wrong. God, I ask you to forgive me. And God, right now, I bring it to you. I'm, I'm not hiding it. I'm bring, you can't clean what you're hiding. Last one. Last one, fifth one. And uh, Jana, you and y'all don't worry yet. It's going to take a minute. But the fifth one is purify your heart. Purify your hearts. You see, the hands are linked to the heart. Right? We usually do with our hands what's in our heart. So the problem is not my hands. The problem is the control center. The problem is my heart, right? Now, let me tell you. I got years ago, I'd walk coach. Whenever it was, I'd, I'd get out and I'd walk. And it may have been before I got coach. I can't. I think it was before I got coach. But I'd get out and I'd walk. Now, I've always been a walker. That's one more reason. That's how I deal with my stress. So I'd get out walking and I noticed that I had real severe indigestion. I mean, it's like gas was trapped here. And, uh, and I, I, I kind of, something something's not right. And then I'd get on the treadmill and I used to be, like I said, I was a, worked with the ambulance service for years, taught CPR. When I'd get on the treadmill, I would feel, now my brother-in-law who was on a business trip, he died of a massive heart attack on a treadmill. So when I was on the treadmill, I would feel a stabbing pain in my shoulder, between my shoulder blades. And I, I, I knew, uh-oh, that's not good. I knew almost for certain I had blockage in the lower descending aorta because I could feel it. And I thought, I need to go to the doctor. Well, I went to my doctor and he said, well, I'll make an appointment. He made an appointment with a cardiologist and Jeffrey had said, Dad, this cardiologist is excellent. So... You know, but it took forever to get in there. Now, I'm still having all these pains. 
When I finally get there and I meet with the doctor, he's sitting there. If we're not five minutes into the conversation, he says, he says this. He said, well, you know, I'm free this afternoon. I'm going out of town, but I'm free this afternoon. And he said, I could do a stint. Now, some of you have had stints, so you know what I'm talking about. So, and he began to talk like he was going to do a stint, but he hadn't done even none of the tests yet. Because David, I brought up the fact that y'all were at our house and we were trying to cut down a tree and I couldn't swing the axe five times before I went and sat down. You remember that? And I told him that. He said, well, I can do a stint this afternoon. Well, I don't even know if I need a stint. He said, well, go over here. We're going to, they did an uh, echocardiogram. They did some other things and then they put me on the treadmill. Well, when I got on the treadmill, it started hurting. And then all of a sudden, this is scary. All of a sudden, the girl says, sit down, stop, stop, stop. Sit. She grabs a chair, puts it over, sits me down on that chair, and the head nurse for the doctor is running. And she says, get him to there, and starts shouting the orders. Doctor, cardiologist, never forget. I've got two boys and two girls, and I love my daughters, but when dad's in trouble, you're not depending on a son-in-law. Neither one, one of them ledges speaking and preaching today, and I'm so proud of them. My other son's sick with the flu. But believe you me, they're not here, and I know it. I looked at Sheila sitting with us, those two sons, on one on one each side of her, three of them sitting there, and I thought, I may not be back. He gets me in there. They start doing. Anybody's ever had it? They did it through my hand. He said, now this. He said, do you want to be put to sleep? I said, no. Do you want me to give you something to calm you down? I said, no. Now there's a massive scream. And, and, and the nurses, a precious African-American, beautiful nurse. She was so sweet. She was, the radio was playing I Can Only Imagine, and she was just a singing. And I was thinking, you know, I love that song, but I don't know if I want to talk about heaven right, right now. <laughs> but let me tell you, he, he takes that instrument, he goes in, you feel it coming up through that underarm, you feel it, and all of a sudden you feel it in here. There it is. 90 to 99% blockage in the Widowmaker. 99% blockage in a Widowmaker that'll kill a man like that. There it is. When he opened it up, blood. You feel it. Do you know that's exactly what he's saying here? He's saying, you know what sin will do? Sin builds up into the heart, clogs it up. For long, you and I don't feel the presence, the power, the provisions. The, we don't, we don't, we, there's something seriously wrong in our life. And you know what this means, purify? It means to make chase. You know what that means? God told Hosea in the Old Testament, he said, Hosea, he said, I want you to get married. And he told him, he said, you go marry. And Hosea married a woman. Her name was Gomer. One writer said, call her Go-Go Gomer because she couldn't keep her britches on. 
Go-Go Gomer ran around with everybody that had two legs. She was unfaithful. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. Slept around. In fact, some of his children, his daughter, Laruhamah, he named her Laruhamah, meaning you're not my daughter. He even had children that were not his. And, and, and at the end of the day, God says to, to Hosea, he said, Hosea, this is going to be a painful marriage, but this is a picture of my relationship with Israel. And Israel has played the harlot. They've slept around with idols. They've been called up into the world. And, and, and Hosea begins to woo her back and win her over and love her anyway. In fact, he buys her back when she's being auctioned off as a slave. He shows up and buys her back. And you know what he says? He says these words, make chase. In other words, be faithful to your covenant relationship. Now, everybody listen. You and I, if you're a Christian, we're the bride of who? The bride of Christ. And let me tell you, when you and I get called up in the world, we start living in disobedience to God's word. Do you know what happens? We are committing spiritual adultery against God. And you know what God says? He says, purify your heart. Make chase. Clean it up. Get it right. David Jeremiah said this, James calls the readers double-minded, a term that expresses fickleness and vacillation. It fits the person who loves God and the world at the same time. Remember the old country music song? Trying to love two women is tearing me apart. And you think, oh, Brother Jeff, how do you know that song? But you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And he went on to make this statement. He says, when you, you and I live like that, it is this attitude of putting one foot in Christ, one foot in the world. Listen, that the grace of God, it keeps the grace of God from flowing in the life of the believer. Now, everybody listen, and I, give, me, give me three minutes. I think I can do it in three minutes. In other words, when you and I start living with one foot in the world, one foot in, in lordship to Christ, which he's not Lord, we start living one foot in the church, one foot in the world. In other words, we start questioning our salvation. We start doubting God's grace and unfailing love. We begin to question the doctrine of eternal security. And before long, we don't know whether we're saved or not. We lose our joy, we lose our peace, and the devil goes, that's exactly where I wanted you. That's it. Now let me close. Take a, take a right. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We were there just a moment ago. Look at it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Now watch what Peter said. 1 Peter 1, 22. Watch this. Now that you have what? Now that you have purified yourselves by what? By obeying the truth. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brother, love one another deeply from the heart. Because let me tell you something. You know what's going to happen? When the old enemy begins to plug this thing up with sin and you and I start living with one foot in the church, one foot in the world, and we're, we, we get caught up in that, you know what happens? This thing can't love because God is what? God is love. 
we get irritable, we lose our joy, we lose the peace, we lose all the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. We're not gentle, we're not self-controlled, we're not loving, we're not kind, we're biting everybody's head off. We're short. Why? Because the truth of the matter is we're just like the child sitting there. We're hiding a sin behind our back and we're thanking God, you don't know it. And God's saying, let me tell you something. I do know what you're hiding. And I love you too much to let you stay there. And he can't cleanse what, he, what you and I hide. Here it is, God. God, I'm sorry. God, I repent. God, forgive me. And the Bible says, what does it say? He's faithful and just to immediately forgive us. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you've never repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, everybody listen to me closely. You heard me a moment ago say I was a walking time bomb. In other words, I've had dear friends, guys I went to school with, who were on, my brother-in-law on a treadmill out in Dallas, Texas, fell dead on the treadmill. Friend of mine walked into a church fell dead. In fact, I have two or three friends in ministry drop dead. Friend of mine, a missionary, retired, first year of retirement, was on the golf course, fell dead. Widowmaker, lower descending aorta plucked. Blood couldn't get through. Instant death. Everybody listen, if you've never repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are one heartbeat from spending eternity separated from God, separated from Jesus Christ, and separated from everything that is good. No, you won't see your grandmother. No, you won't see that dear friend that tried to talk to you about Christ. No, you won't see a parent who lived for Christ. No, you won't see that pastor you loved as a child. No, you won't see those Christian men and women that were in your life. You'll be eternally separated from them forever and nothing you can do will make any difference at all. One heartbeat away. And do you know him? You say, well, what do I do? You just simply stand before God and do this. It's not this. It's, you, know how it you know how a Jewish man prayed? Say, so he prayed. Lord, here I am. Lord, there's a lot of things in my life that I've done that are wrong. Why not? Lord, I've made a mess of my life. But Lord, I'm tired of hiding my sin. I'm tired of running from you. And Lord, right now I repent of my sin. And I ask you to forgive me, Lord. Here I am. Forgive me, Lord. Come into my heart, Lord. Come into my heart right now, Lord. Be the Lord of my life. Take control of my life. Take control of every decision. Lord, I, I give it to you, Lord. I give it to you right now. I surrender, Lord. I'm waving a white flag. I surrender, Lord. I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. From now on, every decision I make in my life will be in consolation under the Lordship of your Holy Spirit and the Word of God, Lord, I'm yours. I'm going to live for you from this day forward for the rest of my life. You ever done that? You ever done that? When you do that, and you may say, you know, I've done that, but I still battle with sin, so do I. 
That's why the Bible says John wasn't writing. He wasn't writing to people that were lost. He was telling Christian people, if you confess your sin. So, but have you ever done that? And you can do that now. Let's stand with heads bowed and with eyes closed. Let me lead you in a prayer. If you've never prayed that prayer and you meant it, if you're watching uh, by live stream, if you're watching later on, you, you, you listen to this prayer. Heads bowed and with eyes closed if you don't know right now. If you say, Brother Jeff, I don't know whether I'm saved, but I want to settle this right now. I want to know that I know. And you pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And you died for me on that cross. Lord, I ask you to forgive me for all the sin in my life. I admit that I'm a sinner. But right now, I'm asking you to come into my heart to forgive me to cleanse me to wash me clean Lord I ask you to be the Lord of my life I surrender everything to you And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's a man or woman, boy or girl, in the sound of my voice. They say, Brother Jeff, I prayed that prayer and I meant it. Then may they know today that the Bible says that prayer was a prayer of faith that they can know that they're saved today. They're beginning a new journey. They just now entered into a marriage as the bride of Christ. And Lord, I pray that now as they begin to grow and mature, as they read their Bibles, as they follow in believers' baptism, as they unite with the church and make that public, I pray that they'll do that today. Now everybody look this way. Look this way. I married her 45, be 46 years, March 19th, this next year. 46 years. Now, I remember when I married her. She had a white, she had a dress on her. She had a dress on. You know what she did with that dress? She pulled it up into her arms. She cradled it like it was a possession of hers. Her mom had made that dress. She reached around, all you women know, and grabbed that dress up and held it up off the ground. She didn't want nothing to get it dirty. When she came into the church and she came down that aisle, my mind was focused, my eyes were focused on her. And we entered into a covenant relationship. You see, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You're not wanting, you're not wanting your robes of righteousness to get caught in the filth of this world. You're reaching down, grabbing them up, saying, Lord, I want to keep everything, keep it as clean as I can. So when I present myself to you, that I'm a spotless, 
beautiful bride that comes to you. It's what you want. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You come. You come.